For those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan. Um, hi. I am uh, of the Tuttle clan, and um, I have lived in New Zealand for the last uh, five years as a pastor. And so, um, John's my dad, and uh, the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Um, I dress better than he does, um, but there's a, there's a, a lot of similarities. So it's really good to be back with my, with my home church. Um, I think it's been probably 13 years since I've lived in Marquette, um, but it always feels a little bit like coming home, and I love this church. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, me and my dad are very similar, and one of the things that he has passed on to me is a love of architecture. Now, I don't normally like church buildings, especially old ones. They usually, that 60 eras, they're usually hideous. They have terrible colors, and they're just designed poorly. Um, but for some reason, I like this building. I don't know why. It might be due to the fact that it's my home church. But for me, I just love these, the glue lamb beans that kind of form the, the flying buttress and I love the fact that there is wood shiplap up the walls. And for some reason, I know the building's dated, and I know it's old, but for some reason, this room, I love it. It could be the fact that this was the first place I ever preached. It could be that I have a lot of good memories here, and coming back, it's like coming home. I love the fact that there's Christmas trees that are with lights. But for some reason, I really like this building. Now, this isn't just a completely random analogy. I was, I was reading in my office a couple weeks ago a passage that I have read a thousand times because it's a pretty small book. So sometimes, you know, when you're like, I need to read the Bible, and you just read a small book because it's small. Um, and so I was, I was reading Ephesians, and Ephesians 2.10, it, I'm going to, can we get that slide up? I'm going to read it there because I forgot to give him the translation that I was going to read from, so I'm going to read it here. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it was just one of those moments. I was just trying to, to spend my time with the Lord in the morning, and I read that phrase. I've read it a thousand times. I read, I've read Ephesians numerous, numerous, numerous times. But in that moment, just, it kind of just popped out of the page. And the word that, that struck me wasn't necessarily the good works or what he had prepared in advance for us. It was that we are God's handiwork. Some translations say we are God's craftsmanship, that we are his, his artistry. In the, the translation that I really like, it's the New English translation. It says that we are God's creative work. And it just struck me, it jumped out of the page thinking about this, that I've always known that God is a creator. I've known that he creates, but the idea that he is actively forming me into a creative work. Now, the reason I love this building is the intentionality that went into it. You know that it took hundreds of hours to lay every one of those boards. 
of the work that it took to, to build those beams, that it was intentional, that it, it required effort and thought. And yet all of that is a reflection of what God is doing in our lives and has done on the cross. That he is not haphazard, that he is not unintentional, but he is a master craftsman who is crafting our lives, who's crafting this church together as a creative work to reflect his glory and his grace. So oftentimes we look at our lives and we view it as if you just are the, the result of mom and dad, that you're just the, the what happens. And yet God looks at you as his redeemed children going, you are my creative work, formed and fashioned, redeemed out of the darkness and brought into a new creation, refined, crafted, and I am working the master's hands on your lives and as a collective group to reflect my glory that you would walk in the works that I have prepared for you. If we look at our lives as just random accidents that happen, we'll never know where he's taking us. But if we know that he is working all things together for good for those who love him, that he's working our lives and shaping us, that we would actually be a reflection of who he is. That we would step into the works that he has for us. That we as children would grow up into the family business. Another thing I miss is the Catholic Church's bells going off, like clockwork on Sunday. God is taking your life, and he is shaping it, and he's forming it. And if you look at the elements and the things that are, that are moving in your life, and you do not see the master's hands shaping you, sanding you down, chipping you off, to shape you and to form you into his creative work, you won't understand where he's taking you. But if you cooperate with his hand, you might just end up looking beautiful. Not as necessarily the world defines it, but what is eternal, what is glorious. You would be a vessel that he would fill with his glory that you would actually look like Jesus. Your ultimate destiny in life is not to be famous. It's not to have a successful business. It's not even to have a prosperous family. Your ultimate destiny in life is to look like Jesus. God has put his spirit in you that he would form and shape you, that you would look like him. That when you step across into eternity, you would actually reflect the glory in the image of Jesus. Not as a carbon copy, but as a unique individual that he has shaped 
informed you that you would look like him. Meaning this, discipleship doesn't look like everyone being the same. Discipleship looks like you living your life as if it was Jesus. Or Jesus living your life if he was you. Meaning no one can be Nathan Tuttle. I'm Nathan Tuttle. That's my name. You can't have it. I can't be Dan. I can't be Paul. I can't be Ryan. I can't be anyone else. I actually just have to be me. And what I have, the cards I have, is what I got. Wish I was a little bit more muscular. Probably could go to the gym. That means I'd have to go to the gym. (laughs) There's a lot of things that you go, well, if I had that, I could do this. But the reality is, is that I'm not going to grow anymore. I'm this height. I have my facial features. Attempt to grow a beard, can't grow it in here. That might change one day, but reality is right now it's not happening. There's a lot of things about me that are just me, and I, I have. But the reality is, is that Jesus calls me his master work, his creative work. And all I can do is cooperate with his hand of grace on my life and go, you know what? I'll say yes to you in every season. The reality is, is that you have gold for you in every season of your life. There is gold for you to get. Sometimes you will only catch a glimpse of God's face in the valley. You will not see it on the mountaintop. Sometimes we wonder why hardship happens or hard seasons happen. And you're like, it seems like there's no point in this little curve in the road. I don't get it. And yet, the reality is, he goes, you won't see that side of my face if you don't go down that road. He wants to reveal something of his nature and his character in relationship with you that you will not have if you don't take that curve. So often, we like shortcuts, right? I like shortcuts. I tend to be a destination guy, like just skip the journey and just get me to where I need to go. But we, we were talking in our, our group, our prayer group, that the joy of life is actually in life. It's not like you're like, I was born and then I died. That end into eternity I go. Like that's the whole point. You're missing the whole point of life. It's called life. You're born, you grow up you, under your parents, You start your own family, you work, you have milestones, and then you die. You have a life to encounter God. And if you short-circuit it or try to skip seasons because they're difficult or they're hard, you will miss aspects of God's nature that he has to reveal to you. Sometimes we look at it and go, I don't know if I can trust God's hand. I don't know if I can actually trust him. I'll tell you this, I would far rather trust myself to the hands of God than to the hands of my enemy. 
Sometimes the only thing we can do is actually cast ourselves on the mercy of God and say, you know what? Would you just do your thing? Because I would far rather let you lead me than to trust that I can get there on my own strength or trust the opinions of man to shape my life. You who spoke the stars into existence and who upholds them by the word of your power, you're the one that I get to entrust myself to. And sometimes your pruning feels more like a wood chipper. Sometimes your hand doesn't seem so light anymore and your burden isn't so easy, dude. And yet, in the middle of it, you get to encounter God in a whole new way. And then as you're being discipled, you're actually being led into the propagation of his nature. Meaning, as you become a son, you step into the family identity and you start bringing that family presence wherever you go. I want to be able to preach the gospel with words. I also want to be able to share the love of Jesus by being humble and kind. I want, when people see me, when I work with my unsaved coworkers, that they actually see something that is different than the world. This room was never, this body was never meant to be the same as the world. The whole context of Ephesians 2 is that we are actually called out of darkness, that we've been saved, that we've been brought out. It is a separation. And if we don't go on the journey of letting the master craftsman shape us, form us, bring us in and grow us up, we will be no different than anyone else. We'll just have good theology. And if people walk in this room who do not know Jesus, and all they find is people singing a few songs, and they do not encounter God, if Jesus is not in this room, what do we have? What do we have? Do you know that the theology, even if preached, if it does not have the life-giving spirit on it, even though it is technically correct, it will not produce life in people? You have to have him. We are not meant to look like everyone else. We are called to be different. When, When that person jilts you, when they steal from you, when they slander you, you are not meant to take their head, though it seem wonderful. You're called to be meek and lowly, to actually manifest a kingdom that is not of this world, whose wisdom is not of this world, and testify to something that is greater than anything that man knows. You know that Jesus in Philippians 2, Paul is exhorting the Philippians. says, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he be in the form of God. Did not take equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. But he took on the form of the servant, obedient even to death. You're like, that doesn't sound like fun. 
That really doesn't sound like fun. I mean, humility is great on paper until you have to do it. It's like, oh, the kingdom is not of this world. It's so great. I'm going to kill you. Take my food out of my fridge again, and I'm going to stab you with a fork. No, I'm going to do a spork because it's going to hurt more. I mean, if if you've been flatted with people, you know. Like your roommates, you're like, oh, yeah, that's your laundry all over the room. Yep. Oh, bless your beautiful hide. I mean, people get under our skin. And yet Jesus calls us to go to the next level. In Philippians 2, he says this. He says, consider others more significant than yourself. When's the last time you considered somebody more significant than yourself? Not the, not the relationships where it's convenient for you to do that. Actually, to the person across the room that you kind of think is weird. To the person where it actually costs you something. This body was never meant to be the same as everywhere else. We're called to be different. We're called to spread the life of Jesus. And there's three things that I think that help us do that. I think we need to encounter the kindness of God. It says a few verses up in Ephesians 2. It's one of my all-time favorite passages for the last couple of years. It talks about him saving us, and it says that in the ages to come that he may demonstrate the riches of his grace and kindness towards us. He saved us so he can be kind to us forever. Have you ever thought about your salvation? Your life is going, my life, God has redeemed me because his motive and purpose was to be kind to me forever. When you wake up in the morning, do you wake up with that sense of God's going to be kind to me today? Do you, does that happen, or is it like, oh my God, just got to survive, just got to get through? Just got to get through, just got to get through the finals. Just got to figure out how to pay my rent and how not to eat ramen noodles for the 50 millionth time. Wake up and go, God's going to be kind to me today. I may not always understand his kindness, His kindness sometimes seems, well, not kind. But he's kind to me today. Every breath he gives me is his kindness. Every time you you feel the sun in your face, it's his kindness. I mean, the science between how wonderful the earth is is amazing. Like, you ever thought, if we were just a little bit off, we'd be fried. And if we were just a little bit further from the sun, we'd be frozen. And yet, he's situated it perfectly. Now, sometimes in the UP, it doesn't feel like you get any sun, even in summer. I mean, I think I've seen sleet in every month of the year. But there's still those moments when you're, you're out at Little Presque Isle, and you're like, it's perfect. It's beautiful. God's kindness to you has no bounds. 
And when you encounter and experience the kindness of God, suddenly you don't, your heart is changed and you're able to actually extend the same kindness that you've been given. So often I feel like we don't know how to be kind because we don't actually know how to be grateful. We don't actually know how to be grateful for what God's given us. It's like, oh, thanks, dude. Cheers. And yet you're going, you sustain me, you uphold me. Every day of my life, you've been kind to me. Every day of my life, you've been kind to me. You've never, you've never spoken a word in harshness that was over the top. You've never, he's never overreacted in anger towards you. He's never called you names. His motive has always been one of love towards you. You will never be more loved in this moment than you are right now. You'll never be more loved. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing you could do to prove it. There's nothing you could do to work to get more. You are perfectly loved with the fullness of God's strength, power, and might. The same love that he loves his son, he loves you in this moment. When you catch his kindness, when you catch his love, it frees you to love because there's nothing for you to earn. It's not like if I need a little bit more, then I can pour out. You go, I am fully loved now, whether I feel like a success or not. Whether I feel like my life is going where I want it to go, I have everything because the king of the universe is my father and he calls me by his name. I am fully loved now in this moment and I might be a jar of clay I might be frail and weak, and though I fail a thousand times, I will get back up because his blood speaks a better word than my sin and my failures and my fears. His love frees you up to serve. It frees you up to love because he's calling you into identity saying, hey, you, if you follow me, I'll make you into something beautiful. If you just yield to my hand instead of drawing back in fear, if you just trust me with that one thing that you don't understand, if you trust me, I'll make it beautiful. Those scars you have, if you trust me with them, I'll make them trophies of mercy. I'll take those scars that you have and I'll fill them with my mercy, with my kindness, with my glory. And they'll, they'll become testimonies and monuments of my kindness and my love for you. When you encounter his grace, it frees you up from this striving mentality of trying to earn dad's affection. Frees you up from figuring out which goat you can sacrifice to to make him like you a little bit more. Like we we read it like, works. And we're like, okay, works in our context. But you realize like these people that, are, that Paul is talking to, they've never known a time in their life where they 
haven't been in this rat race of trying to get God to look on them with favor. So it's like, I think this year we can sacrifice a chicken and hopefully he'll send rain on our crops so my children don't starve to death. Or I have to sell the one I don't like into slavery. Just joking. But kind of. Like we, we think of it, like we live in a very nice kind of society. But for them, God, the God's favor was all based off of what they could do. Can I sacrifice a, an ox? If I, if I do exactly what he wants, he'll look on me with favor. And Paul's going, no, the cross has destroyed that. He, has, he chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And you're freed up. Now, not to try to work for his approval, you're free to walk as a son in your identity and your calling, confident that the Father is for you, that he's with you, that he's behind you, and that he is cheering you on. He's a faithful father that when you stray from the path, he'll pull you back on. His discipline in your life is not meant as a punitive punishment to inflict hurt upon you. It's meant as a parent going, I will discipline my children because I love you. You know which children don't get discipline? Bastards. Illegitimate children. They don't have the father's love. They don't have a father's care. They don't bear his name. They're left alone. You're not illegitimate. You're his son's. So when he's disciplining you, he's bringing you in, it's not meant as, I'm going to destroy you because you've angered me. It's meant as, I love you too much to leave you here. You, I love you so much that I will not leave you in this pit. I will discipline you to get you out that you would walk in maturity and health. We've all met children who have never been disciplined by their parents. They're called little monsters. I mean, I'm sure that you guys don't know any. But the reality is, is that sometimes, I, I mean, I have friends where you're like, you, you weren't disciplined as a child, were you? And you just look at them, you go, there are elements and areas of unhealth because you've never been disciplined. You've never been told no. You think only about yourself. You're selfish. You're narcissistic. And you're probably deeply unhappy. And yet God doesn't leave you abandoned. He doesn't leave you to your own devices. He's there with you, pouring out his grace again and again and again in your life that you would actually look like him, that you would be transformed into his image, that you would bear the family name, that you would have the family character, that you would walk in the family kingdom. And as you're transformed, it enables you to step out and actually walk in the works that the Father has prepared for you. How do you walk in the family's ways into the family business, the family ministry, 
if you don't bear the family kingdom or the family culture. Walking in the works that God has for you, you have to go through the journey of actually letting the master's hands shape you. Encountering his grace, encountering his love, encountering his kindness frees you up to actually not be narcissistic little monsters, but to walk as children of God. You are called far higher than what you can dare to dream. It may look far more mundane than you can imagine. It doesn't mean it's any less glorious. I think those in heaven that we're going to look at and be like, you were my hero, that you're my hero in eternity, will probably be the names that none of us know. The ones who served and loved in secret. There's a, a family in the church that I work for in New Zealand. Uh, both their boys have muscular dystrophy. So they're 22, 23. Two children. One is on the Osberger, he's on the spectrum. And he says the funniest things. Uh, he's also, uh, can be a little bit difficult at times. Wonderful, sweet boy, but he's, he's, he's on the spectrum. And I see the, the way that the parents love them. And you're like, you literally have never had a full night's sleep in 23 years. Because you have to wake up and move your children. So if they're uncomfortable, they, they scream to get their parents' attention so that the parents can turn them and get them comfortable. They can't go to the bathroom by themselves. They literally really can't do anything by themselves. Muscular dystrophy is, for those of you who don't know, it's a condition that causes your muscles to retract. So you can't actually use your hands or your, your muscles. You can't walk. And I see the way that they love them the way that they serve and the way that they've laid down their lives. And you look at him and you go, nothing I do is nearly as sacrificial as that. Like my love is like this big and their love is like this big. You know, you see it like, I, I don't, I can't even imagine what it's like to do that. And there has not been an easy journey, but I see Christ in them. And I'm like, I don't know how you've done it. But I kind of want that. Jesus is never going to be impressed with how many people I speak in front of. I mean, could you imagine being like, Jesus, I spoke in front of 3,000 people. You know? He's like, I gave you the breath. I gave you the ability. I brought the people. I'm so impressed with you, dude. Wow. Congratulations with the gift I gave you. Have you ever thought about that? What we esteem? God isn't interested in how many people I speak in front of. He's interested about my love and my obedience. I can only walk through the doors that he opens for me. Now, that, that doesn't, look like a, doesn't look like I'm a passive individual. I'm not saying be passive with your life. But the fact is, is that God has prepared the works for you in advance. 
He's never going to champion things that he gave for you. He'll champion your obedience and your love. And as a family, what I was, what I was feeling for this was I feel like there was this call to discipleship, but there was this call to look at the, the ones that you wouldn't normally love or the ones that might slip through the cracks or the ones that maybe you've had a beef with and you need to make it, you need to reconcile. Because there is a call on your life individually to look like Jesus, but there is a call as a corporate group to look like Jesus. And each one of you is a unique piece in that puzzle. Meaning, I cannot be the full embodiment of the church by myself. Shocking, I know. I have to have others around me to actually manifest Christ in its fullness. Just like a one church might have outpouring and might have a move of the Spirit, but I'm pretty convinced that it takes the corporate church in a city to transform it. One church will never have the monopoly on the thing in a city. It requires the whole body. It requires humility to go, I don't understand your music. I don't understand the way that you do things, but I'm going to serve you and I'm going to love you. I'm not going to champion myself over you. I'll become the least of all that Christ might be glorified. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to gather in groups again. And I want you to say, I want you to do this. I want you to say one thing that you are glad that God gave you in your life. Not just like, I love my new truck. Things like... I love uh, the sense, the ability to take risks. It's a God-given gift. Or I love the ability that he has given me a prophetic spirit. Something that's a gift that God has given you. The reason I want you to do this is because sometimes we actually don't celebrate the things that God's given us. We just try to do it in everybody else, but we actually don't like who God made us to do, made us to be. And sometimes actually verbalizing it, it's terrifying because you're forced to look at yourself. But there's power when you speak out, going, God gave me this, and I'm not going to hide it. Then I want those in the groups, I want you to start speaking out things that you see as God-given gifts over the other people. Because it takes a family to call other people into their identity. You know, if you have a gift in the Spirit, and it's not raised up in the context of a family... You just become an orphan in your gift because there's no, there's no family to nurture it. Have you ever noticed how trees, when they're abandoned and alone, like say on a hill, they get really weathered? They're gnarled and twisted because they're exposed to the elements. They have a hard life. They have to survive. It's like the, the pine trees that grow really high up in the mountains. They have a hard life, but you get the trees that grow up in the midst of a forest and they're protected by the other trees. When, as a family, we learn to celebrate the gifts in other people's lives, we give them courage and permission to step out. We give them permission to step out and even fail and pick them back up again that they would do it again. 
And so I want you to break up in the groups. Just take five minutes. Don't, this doesn't have to be an hour-long uh, Sozo session. But I just want you to speak out one thing that you see as a God-given gift in your life and actually declare it boldly. And then I want the others in the group to actually speak out and say, this is what I see in your life. And if you don't know the person, just ask Jesus and speak it out. You hear the voice of God. All right, so we're just going to take, take 10 minutes to do that. And then 